Welcome to another Cyberitaville podcast. So glad you guys could join us today. We appreciate you guys being here and listening to this. And then as always, you know, please share, uh, please comment. Uh, that's how we get our word out there. Uh, on the Cyberitaville podcast, we talk about everything security, cybersecurity, how it affects your work, families, your personal life, uh, friends. And I mean, you know, like me, you guys, some of you guys are kind of the security person that everyone in your uh, circle of friends and family goes to. So so this stuff pertains. Um, we're going to talk about the government's new cybersecurity plan um, and talk about kind of some of the things that we've seen in it. We've looked at it. Uh, we're still kind of working our way through it. So we might not have everything perfectly straight. And uh, if you like this, please share. If you don't like it, you know, give us a comment. Um, but spread the word. Today, I have with me my very best good friend, as Bubba Gump might say it, or, or uh, Forrest Gump might say it, uh, David Green. Uh, David joins me from Colorado. Uh, as you might recall, I'm sitting in Satellite Beach, Florida, and we have a, a perfect, uh, perfectly awesome thunderstorm outside right now. So if you hear any cracking in the background, it's probably just lightning. And then uh, Gina Beckman is also uh, with me here in the virtual studio. So she might jump in here and there if I get too far off track, but that's basically it. So let's get on with the show. Oh, and actually, Dave, do you want to say a couple of words about you know who you are? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Steve and I have been working together on many projects for many years. And so we've done uh, cool things and we keep love to work with Steve and love to uh, be part of the community. And thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. I uh, love you, buddy. Um, all right. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is, again, the government's uh, new strategic cybersecurity plan. And then one of the things we thought was interesting about it is it it's definitely taking a little bit of a different approach. Um, and that's the part that, uh, frankly, we think is the most interesting is that it's, it's looking at cybersecurity a little bit differently, maybe even more offensively, if you will. All right. So to jump in, the, the five areas of the plan are, one, protecting critical infrastructure. And that kind of makes sense. That's definitely kind of the realm of the government. And for probably many of our listeners, this is not something that's going to be uh, specific to them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, even though that is an interesting topic and we might hit it later. Uh, Dave and I have actually done quite a bit of work in different critical infrastructure from communications to power generation and stuff like that in the past. So, so some of this, uh, you know, definitely pertains to organizations we work with and, and it might be, you know, you, but we're not going to spend a ton of time there. Um, we might come back and visit that on a different date. Then it talks about disrupting and dismantling threat actors. And this is one of the, I think, the more interesting pieces of the plan, actually. And so we'll spend some time uh, talking about what exactly that means. Then the third pillar is shaping market forces, which is also super interesting. And then the last two pillars are investing in resilient future and forging international partnerships. We'll look a little bit at the investing side because we think that there are listeners, there are organizations out there that you might be uh, you know, a member of or working within or whatever. 
And you might look at, you know, how do we get access maybe to some of the funding that comes out of this? So we might touch on that, but I think that the two most interesting pieces are really disrupting and shaping market forces. So we'll talk probably about that. And then on the international relationships or partnerships, excuse me, um, we touched on this in a different podcast fairly recently about how in the Davos uh, you know, meeting, uh, cybersecurity was one of the top things, which I think is maybe the first time it's ever been at the top or, or even on the agenda for the, the Davos uh, you know, industrial heavyweights uh, meeting. And uh, one of the concepts there was this international partnership, you know, how do we together as multiple nations fight cybercrime? So it's kind of interesting, but I'm not sure we're going to spend a lot of time in there, mostly because there's so much here. And we're thinking that that most of us might be kind of in the, you know, the, the two or, or three topics. So we'll see, but probably additional podcasts to follow. Let's just jump right into this. So we we kind of talked about, we'll sort of skip over the defend critical infrastructure piece. So the pillar two is uh, disrupt and dismantle threat actors. And this is something that uh, you probably remember this pretty well, uh, David, that sort of back in the day, we'd go to these conferences and inevitably when the, when the feds were present or someone from you know, some, some even local government, you know, were there, there'd be questions about counter hacking and, and doing things. And typically, you know, and this is maybe going back 10, 15 years, the, the answer was, you can't do that. You know, don't, don't do those things. There's too much liability. But now this is a concept that's really being pushed at the international level and at the now in this plan. And so let's, let's jump right in. But yeah, just let me finish that question. Do you remember that kind of this was sort of one of those areas oh, yeah. that is like, don't do that? <laughs> yeah, the, the hacking back thing seemed to be a uh, one of those deals that we've heard about, you know, for at least at least 15 years. Right. Like, oh, you shouldn't yeah. do this. And there's always yeah. rumors of some shady organization where big corporations pay somebody kind of under the hood. Yeah, hey, we don't want you to do this. We don't want it to be attributed to us. And so this is a plausible deniability type of operation. You know, we'll give you yeah. we'll, uh, give you some, uh, I don't know, some free stakes or something and. You go yeah. do this job for us, um, but we don't want to. We don't want our corporation to be part of it. But now, yeah, like you said, it seems that the uh, government is even pushing these uh, objectives, right? Like be more offensive and uh, be on the offensive, right? Yep. Yeah. So just a quick, re- just a quick recall on this, though. Like you look back at the administrations we've had over the past twenty years or so. We had Bush in office, right? He yep. never acknowledged that there was any covert or offensive type of tax going on. Yeah. But we still got impl- imp- implicated in uh, attacks on Iran, right? We had Stuxnet and nuclear attacks and such. Obama was pretty reluctant to talk about nation state actors or attribution, probably wisely slow because, you know, attribution on the Internet is hard. Yep. <laughs> so he's yep. like, do I want to do I want to say Russia or China is hacking? It's not really. So he never really did. But of course, he was doing a lot of things under the hood to push that. Yeah. Trump did a lot of raising alarms about, especially about um, China, like Huawei and such, like, you know, they, they're building 5G networks and so they can intercept all our communications, that kind of a deal. Yeah. And so now we hear some, uh, the new thing coming. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I find it super interesting and, and kind of like, it's exciting, but it's also in my mind, I wonder like, how do we do this, right? How is it actually going to, to happen? That's that's going to be the biggest piece, uh, sort of unknown. And this is is the implementation of it. And if the intent is more clear, more focused, and uh, and interesting, and maybe what we've needed to do for a long time, the implementation piece is one of the things I have a question about. Is like how do we actually do it? But so so under this section, which is section two or or you know pillar two, 
there are several parts. So the integral federal disruption activities, this is essentially, you know, Department of Defense, um, what they're going to do. The second part is enhancing the public-private operational collaboration to disrupt adversaries. Um, this is an area that we've seen sort of a lot of talk about for a long, long time in our industry that's never really kind of yielded, at least to my knowledge, much much in terms of, of results. But I think I, I'm optimistic, at least, that we'll see more activity here. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is if we go to other countries, um, probably Israel is the is the best example of this. They have a very strong collaboration between defense, Israeli Defense Force, um, sort of university and education, and uh, the private sector. So that collaboration between private, government, and and really defense, um, it, it, you know, works very tightly. One of the ways they've done that is they put you know educational centers business centers uh, right next to the military. And of course, a lot of the people that end up in industry or or uh, or education or government, they actually come out of the Israeli Defense Force and and you know worked in that industry. So they they facilitated this much better than we have here in the US. But I'm hoping that we'll see some of those kinds of things there as well. Yeah, you you can see a little bit of it too in the last few years anyway, with like the CISA releasing, you know, kind of almost daily streams of these are the things you should worry about. Here's a bunch of vulnerabilities that are emerging, you know, yep. in, in various industries from IT to OT, right? They're just one of those types of deals. So I think it's happening. I think it's happening. Uh, it's maybe yeah. a little slower moving here, but it is starting to, starting to take off. Yeah. yeah. Um, the third uh, objective within this pillar is to increase the speed and scale of intelligence sharing and victim notification. So obviously one of the things that we have struggled with, I think, over the years is, is Everyone's afraid to share information because you know it could reveal something about yourself. There, you know, we we probably do have lawyers that tend to you know advise us if you're working for a company anyway that you know you don't want to share those things because it it could have blowback. It could create liability for the company. It's it's always been a struggle to share information. Um, but some you know if you're already in a in a local government or something you're probably a little bit closer to this you've been part of these uh groups and whatnot for in information sharing but um um uh, you know may, i would say a lot of private corporations uh probably don't do this at all now interesting sidebar one of our clients suggested that we should be establishing essentially a sort of intelligence sharing or or uh, you know, get together of multiple CISOs. So some of those things are happening just ad hoc and, and you know, facilitated by, by one organization or another. So I think the openness to uh, sharing is increasing and, and we'll have more success with these things. Mm -hmm. uh, the last, oh, sorry, so, so objective number four is preventing abuse of U.S.-based infrastructure. So today, you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the internet's infrastructure sits here in the U.S. And so here we're trying to, uh, or the government's trying to sort of focus attention on cloud infrastructure, domain registrars, hosting, and all these different things. That um, I just had sort of my light flash here. So, whoops, there it goes again. This podcast might be cut short here soon. Hopefully not. Um, <laughs> just the, that's twice now that the power just kind of surged a little bit. It's an attack in your infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think this is Thor attacking me. But um, uh, <laughs> anyway, so so basically, um, a lot of what the internet runs on sits here in the U.S. 
And of course, it's also being exploited and used for attacks, um, sometimes by these foreign uh, resellers, if you will, that sort of operate with impunity outside the US, um, yet it's still our uh, infrastructure. So some of this is going to probably be pushing more uh, responsibility, if you will, on those providers. Um, now, this is the in most interesting thing uh, is, uh, I think, five, which is the counter cybercrime, defeat ransomware. So uh, as we've been seeing, I mean, ransomware just isn't uh, isn't going away and it keeps going uh, you know, up and whatnot. And uh, as we have talked about, you know, for for years now is that the operators often, you know, operate from, quote unquote, safe havens, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Um, you know, anywhere really where it's hard to do any sort of through the government uh, enforcement of, uh, let's say, extraditions or, or anything like that, that's where these guys can operate from. And so uh, because it affects things like businesses, critical infrastructure, et cetera, there's now an impetus, if you will, to say, hey, we're going to we're going to counter hack. We're going to try to take those systems down. And I think with, if you think about the geopolitical climate as well, it's sort of gotten to a point where there's no downside to doing this. Whereas before, you know, there was maybe that sense of we don't want to, you don't want to mess with that stuff um, because it could have political ramifications. Uh, my sense is that, you know, there's, there's not that level of concern anymore. Yeah. You could even see this happen like in the last 60 days, yeah. right? With the the high ransomware group being taken down. Um, the FBI, the, this is reported, I wasn't part of this, so I don't know. The <laughs> FBI was reported that the FBI, you know, hacked into the Hive network and took, what, 300 encryption keys from that ransomware actor, yep. and they disrupted a bunch of their stuff that they were doing. And I know that the there's other press articles about, um, you know, um, NSA doing the international reach thing to disrupt, like, operations and with Ukraine war. Um, Ukraine-Russia war going on right now. And so it's, I think it's, I think it is happening, as you said. So, yeah, I, it's definitely happening. And, and like you said, you know, they're, they're going after, uh, let's say keys to prevent, uh, and so encryption keys, uh, preventing or, or gaining access to maybe some of the, the, the data and, and services that they have that they're operating. They're also going after, um, illicit cryptocurrency exchanges. So kind of taking out the, the, uh, economic aspect of these attacks. Um, the the money laundering and and counterfeiting that that occurs um, and hitting them there too. So so think of this as very analogous to kind of the government's attack on on uh, you know mafia and uh, and so the 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 illicit alcohol trade back in the in the twenties and thirties you know with Al Capone and company that they they hit them you know in, in multiple different areas not just you know where they made the alcohol but in the distribution in the finance and so on and so forth. So they're kind of doing something similar here, um, attacking their tools and platforms, attacking their pathways to to you know store money or or launder money and so on and so forth. Uh, super interesting stuff. So that is basically that is kind of the the, the piece about you know making making it harder to be a threat actor. And 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 when we talked about this briefly, Gina, one of the things that I think is interesting about this is. We've, we've sort of been on the defense for a while where we're kind of, all right, how do we defend against this and how do we defend against that and so on and so forth. Um, and that's probably been a lot of both the tools, the processes and the advice that we have been working with, everything from local governments to 
um, uh, companies, uh, and even at the federal level, it's sort of been like this defensive uh, buildup. How do we defend ourselves? How do we do this? And all along, our adversaries have grown their organizations, improved the efficiency of their structures, done all this kind of stuff, and we sort of just let them be. And what I love about this is we're sort of making their life bad, their life harder. Uh, and in doing so, we might not you know, protect ourselves directly, but we'll make it harder for them uh, to be successful, to, to monetize, and so on and so forth. You, know? um, you wonder, how strong are their networks, their computers, and whatnot? Are they as good at patching and, and having you know, tools uh, to, to protect against you know, someone attacking them? Do you know, Dave? I don't know. I I kind of I kind of doubt it. Like their ops yeah. have to suck just as bad as ours. <laughs> yes. Well, not only that, they're not. I mean, to some degree, they're probably also victims of some of the other actors out there simply by you know the, <laughs> the the fact that they have the time they don't know who they're they're going after anyway. So there's probably some degree of that, right? But then you kind of imagine at least that some of those, uh, hey. You just encrypted my shit, buddy. You know, can you you know lay off and give me the keys? You know, some of those things probably get resolved on the back end like that without monetary uh, exchanges uh, happening. But I, I I definitely believe at least or think that they probably haven't spent that much time on their own defenses because they are offensive and they're not really used to that. They're not used to someone counter uh, you know hacking them. Mm-hmm. So I I certainly look at it as like, hey, if we can go in there and you know, basically disrupt their workflow, their day, they'll be less effective. They'll be able to target fewer uh, companies. So it's kind of just the the natural evolution of this, right? Yeah. You know, Ukraine is kind of a similar, almost an ana- analogy to this. Uh, you know, recently, or probably for the last six months or so, we've seen attacks inside Russia, right? Instead of just being defensive. And this is kind of like that. So instead of simply just sitting there and defending yourself, you know, for what comes flying over the border or through our perimeter, uh, you know, go in and, and disrupt uh, the attackers' supply chains, uh, their systems, you know, make them sort of look over their shoulder, right? Anyway. Right, yes. So to me, this is a, is a, is a very different approach from the government than I think what we have seen previously, which tended to be more defensive Maybe some of this counter uh, cyber crime activity, like you mentioned, was done, you know, in the, you know, with the CIA or NSA um, and sort of in the dark uh, because we didn't want that. We didn't want to acknowledge that we were doing it. And then now mm-hmm. I think we're kind of, you know, all right, uh, we're opening up. <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to hide this anymore. It's kind of like the reluctant, like, oh, okay, fine, we'll admit we're doing offensive security or offensive, <laughs> offensive operations, right? Exactly. We're going to notice that happening for at least 20 years. We find evidence of it, like it's been in the press a bunch of times, but this is NSA, whatever, this is NSA's other thing. And, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it goes on and on. So, yeah. Well, I wonder about that. You know, you look at look, probably our one of our biggest adversaries is Russia. And even though, we know that they know that we know that they know that we know that they are the ones perpetrating these things. They always deny it, right? So is that the right approach or is the right approach to say, no, this is us and, and here's why we're doing it? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. I kind of always feel like you doofuses, you know, everybody knows that you are doing this. You know, everyone knows that what's going on in Ukraine is not a, you know, little action, right? It's a outright invasion. 
right? So don't call it mm-hmm. anything else. Oh no, we didn't do that. You know, we're we're not targeting civilians. We're not targeting. You know, we're only going after strategic military objectives. Yeah, right. Um, we're not executing prisoners. That wasn't us. You know, the usual sort of denial of things that are obvious. Um, maybe we're taking a different approach here. I don't know. Yeah. The other pillar that I thought was also super interesting is uh, pillar three, which is shape market forces to drive security and resilience. Um, I feel like this is something I've been preaching since the 90s. Uh, Back then, it was about holding ISPs accountable for the crap that basically traversed their networks and that they really did nothing about. Like when you see a spoofed IP address, you know, something that is coming across your network as an ISP that has a source address that just doesn't make sense for your address. I mean, you should be able to just bit bucket it right there. Boom, out. But they don't do that. And they haven't done that in the past. And I think with the the, the last two or three years where I've seen um, the software supply chain, if you will, be part yeah. of the, the challenge um, uh, with Kaseya and SolarWinds and things like that, I think th- this is where this comes from. We're slow to react. So within this uh, within this area here, what the government set out to do is say, let's let's not just make it the the responsibility or the the burden, if you will, on companies and the government to improve security, but we're going to put some on stewards of data. So the strategic objective number one within this pillar, or three one, is hold stewards of data accountable, meaning that if you collect this data, you got to protect it. Um, Secure development of or the, drive the development of secure IoT devices. I mean, this has been long, uh, you know, it, this has been needed for a long time that you can't put out products that are completely insecure. Uh, I wonder about the implementation of this, but this has been needed for a long time. Like this is a tough area for us, for sure. Yeah, there's certainly nothing wrong with the, uh, you know, government saying, hey, you should follow these NIST standards and things like that. I kind of lose it when uh, I hear that like legislation is probably coming that say, you know, you're, we're going to hold you liable if your products and services don't protect people from vulnerabilities and stuff. It's just because uh, executing something that that's making a software provably secure is a really hard problem. If that were solved, then we wouldn't have vulnerabilities anymore. All these things would just go away. You know what I mean? And so being able to say like, okay, who's who's to blame for this as the big suppliers go? Microsoft, Amazon, Cisco, who knows? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But how do you, I mean, it's not like they don't want to do that now. It's not like they have, you know, Microsoft has definitely made some big inroads to securing software, right? In the last decade, two decades. And yeah, surely they care about it. Uh, so it's just a, one of those challenges is the, the verbiage here that's just, you know, kind of like finger pointing, like if you guys don't secure this stuff, we're going to hold you liable. Well, how, how exactly so that's- does that happen? Yeah, that's the third strategic objective within this, you know, driving market forces. So shift liability for insecure software products and services. This is definitely an interesting one. And the government has like, you know, different historical references, if you will, to how this has been handled. Uh, I totally agree with you. This is one of those where it's going to get really tricky and murky and gray and all these kinds of things. I, I think it's still worthwhile. Like, I think it's a good thing that we're heading this direction where we're shifting uh, some of the burden, but exactly how it's going to, you know, come to pass. Uh, that'll be, that'll be one of those things that, that we'll see how it plays out. Some of it will play out in courts for sure, just for the reasons that you said, right? So, yeah. so the, what's going to be needed here is to say, here's a, here's a, a standard that you have to meet, you know, uh, kind of like a, a standard of due care or, you know, a minimum 
you know, something. We actually have an article on that on the blog called What Do We Owe Each Other? And it's more, I think, from a morality perspective. Yeah. But then there's the regulation perspective that's the next step. Well, some of this in the uh, publications I've been reading and things have said that, like, here's the NIST, what, here's what we want to hold you liable to, which is their NIST software development standards or whatever they are. So I think that's the going to be the driver of what people will be tested against. This The verbiage, though, that's kind of like high, higher level that says, you know, we're going to hold you liable for any vulnerabilities probably isn't really the accurate thing. Like people do that now with like cars and stuff, you know, like, hey, you have a recall on a car because you're, you know, something happens, your tire flies off or something. <laughs> but they don't do that for software security or no, and I think that's that's kind of the balance, right? There, there, there should be some. Now, it's interesting you brought up the thing with cars because there are definitely recalls when enough cases, you know, of a particular flaw or fault or something, you know, kind of come up, then then we put the pressure or the burden on the manufacturer to fix those things. Um, I happen to be a pilot, and in the aviation industry, the burden never falls on the industry. Like the owner of the aircraft has to fix at their cost these things, even if there's a directive from the government, from the FAA, that says, in order for you to fly your aircraft, you need to fix this thing um, that you know was a design flaw by the manufacturer, whether it's the engine or the airframe or whatever. Uh, it's it's a very different thing, and I've always sort of wondered about that standard and. What someone explained to me a long time ago is if we require the manufacturer to fix all those things, there would be no airplane manufacturers. So the government's kind of gone with, well, we're not going to put it on the manufacturer. We're going to put it on the owner operator of the aircraft to fix this very expensive thing. Whereas in the automobile industry, you know, you get enough of those cases and, and it's basically like, okay, you know, so-and-so Mercedes did a recall, Toyota did a recall, you know, Ford does a recall. Mm -hmm. And they go fix those things. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think this is where we're kind of landing somewhere in between as well, where we're trying to get to some of these things need to be, the, the cost of this needs to be borne by the developers, the software developers. Um, and it, it's going to be trying to navigate, I think, you know, what's reasonable and, and what is outside of what they can control or conceivably manage, right? You know, it's, it's uh, when you're dealing with, you know, millions and billion lines of code, you know, stuff is going to get in there. You're simply not going to be able to undo everything. On the other hand, if you're if you have sloppy process, if you're not doing enough, kind of like Microsoft in the late '90s and early 2000s, you know, when it was just a bunch of crap and it was just too easy, that's the stuff I think we're trying to say. No, there's going to be a cost for that. Um, but it'll be really interesting to see um, how that actually plays out. Uh, you know, courts will be involved for sure. Yep. If there's a longer topic here for sure about like how vulnerabilities <laughs> are measured, how they're, you know, there's a yeah. lot of that stuff, that, but definitely there's some science here that I hit a wall on with people say like, oh, we can make, you know, you and I know this and everybody in the security industry knows this intuitively when somebody says something like, oh, this software will make you perfectly secure. Everybody just goes like, come on, man, like yeah. that's bull. And we yeah. all just know it is. Yeah. And so the, the, object, the, the counter to say like, we're going to hold you responsible when you have vulnerabilities, it's a little bit the same kind of a deal. Like you're expecting protection in software, but that doesn't exist. So one of the interesting things, which is also in this section, so their, their, their fourth objective is that federal grants and other incentives will be made available to build this security in. So what I think they're envisioning here is that um, Strategic opportunities, things that can be built into infrastructure, for example, will get, you know, federal funding or some, you know, access to federal funding so that 
um, the cost of this at least will will be uh, partially borne by the federal government, meaning, hey, if we go and do something that improves this, you know, we can seek some federal funding as opposed to bear it all ourselves. So I think that's interesting. Um, we'll just kind of see how it, you know, plays out. Um, but it, it, I like this part of the plan where they're saying, hey, we need this to happen. We're going to put some burden on you, but we're also going to help you by putting, um, you know, putting money in. Um, and and they're also kind of related to that is the the fifth objective objective under this pillar, which is leveraging federal procurement to improve accountability. So uh, over time, I guess um, contractors that sell stuff to the federal government have had to sort of demonstrate cybersecurity. We deal with this with uh, organizations that do um, you know work for the federal government. So think of the supply chain to the federal government. And you know, a few years ago, they came out with the, the cybersecurity uh, maturity model certification (CMMC), which was really an intent to say, "Hey, how do we improve security in the government supply chain?" There are lots of little firms and and whatnot that you know, provide services to the federal government, specifically the DOD, Department of Defense, and they needed to, you know, improve assurances that that they weren't, you know, essentially providing backdoors for our nation state adversaries and others through this big, big, big ecosystem of supply chain. And so that's how the CMMC kind of standard was born or, or framework was born. Uh, it's still in the process of being implemented and to me, one of the things that's very enlightening about it is how many little companies out there have zero clue about cybersecurity and are struggling to meet like the level one, you know, self-certification for CMMC compliance. Uh, it, it's it's kind of amazing. So I, I, I sort of see how the federal government's kind of saying, hey, you know, we need to increase the standard, we need to improve things. And so they'll be they'll be working on that. I, again, I don't know that there's going to be a you know, here is the here is the standard, but they're just kind of saying this is an area that we're going to work on. Um, and then the last thing under this part is a, a federal cyber insurance backstop. And this is also super interesting. This is basically just putting it's kind of like the FDIC for cyber insurance. Um, you know, if you follow the cyber insurance business at all, it's gotten outrageously expensive. And it's get it's getting harder and harder to meet the requirements to get insurance. Um, and I think this is also a natural evolution of two things. One, the cyber insurance industry or market was was developed by just basically selling policies with no requirements in them to create a market to begin with. And then once the market was there, there are additional players in, and there are lots of claims being paid out. They're now tightening those, just like we have with healthcare and life insurance. Where there was a time where you could buy a life insurance, you know, while you're standing there with a essentially a bomb, you know, with a lit fuse before you go on the plane and they would sell it to you. And now, of course, they want a full, you know, health screening and all sorts of stuff. So this is kind of that evolution. But at the same time, you know, the the this the threat, if you will, has also increased. So unlike kind of your health side, you know, the the cyber threats are just increasing and and now it's getting harder because of course these underwriters. Are struggling with with having to pay out big big sums, and they're very costly. Some of these uh, insurance um, uh, claims, obviously. So if you were able to check all the boxes, you got yourself a policy, and then you get hit. You know, it might be millions of dollars that get paid out. And so you know, think of this as a as a federally insured 
you know, uh, cyber insurance, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Now these are all developments, so there's much more to do on them, but you know, uh, one of the thoughts I had about this, I haven't actually looked at who is behind this plan, but um, it's kind of the work of some, I think some smart people, Uh, you know, with the last administration, we had Chris Krebs, you know, as the cyber czar, uh, and he's a super smart dude. Uh, and there's some smart policy that comes out of that, some smart work that comes out of that. To me, there are definitely signs of that in this plan, but I haven't actually looked at who wrote it, but I, I kind of feel like someone like that is behind this, not just a bunch of sort of government types. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I don't know for sure about that one. So. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> it was Chris right. Krebs, huh? Okay. No, okay. no, no. I, I don't think he's in this one. Um, okay. no, cause he was, he was with the previous administration. Like he got called out, you know, with the, with the voting machine stuff when he went out and said, no, everything is secure, you know, and he lost his job, I think the day after, right. Or the same day, but, but he's that kind of person that I think, you know, has the background and experience to bring to a plan like this to say, Hey, you know, we, we can't just do this the same old way when you've got to do it smartly. So we'll have to, Gina, we'll have to do a little bit of sort of like, history on who was behind this plan as well. I think that'd be interesting. I, I definitely look at this as a little bit of a different approach to, to cybersecurity than we've typically seen from the federal government. Uh, and I find it to be interesting for sure. Who was the Chris that just resigned from uh, CISA though? Like, or who just, re- just resigned? There was another Chris. Uh... Oh, so Chris resigned. Um, yeah, because it was right before this plan was released and, and... If you watch the YouTube video with uh, Jen, I forget her last name. Yeah. So, I mean, Jen Easterly, director of cybersecurity. She credits Chris someone for this, this work. I can't remember who. So, oh, Chris Inglis stepped down. Cyber Chris director. Inglis, yeah. Chris Inglis, yeah. yeah. I don't Chris know Chris Inglis. Inglis. Yeah. No, but, but, uh, but Chris, Christopher Krebs or Chris Krebs, he was fired after, you know, basically making a statement about voter fraud and there being nothing wrong with the machines and, and that sort of stuff, right? You might remember that, Tony, you know, in November of 2020, he lost his job there. Yep. I don't, and I'm looking here to see if there's any reason why he's left. Let's see if it was just, you know, hey, big opportunity came along, right? That's probably what happened. I don't know. Um, yeah, so Chris Inglis, first uh, national cyber director is officially left the position. Okay, someone stepping up. Uh, let's see. It, it says resignation is taking place amid the anticipation of the release of the new national cybersecurity program, the first in five years. So he must have been pretty central to it because it's not like, I mean, this is this is February, right? So what does that imply though? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Like, is it related to this or is it just yeah? So here again. So Inglis advocated for a new vision of cybersecurity responsibilities that shifted more of the burden. Uh, of cybersecurity off of end users. Um, so instead, federal government and major firms, those with the most resources, should take up more responsibility. So I would say this definitely has kind of the mark of him on here. I'm guessing he left not because he was disliked, but maybe because of some other opportunity. That's my guess, but I don't know. Because to me, like that statement, this whole plan is about that, shifting responsibilities, federal government yeah. taking more, you know, uh, action. Yeah. Um, so, so last thing is on this section four, which is which is the uh, investing in a resilient future. 
is securing technical foundation of the internet. So probably spending more time with kind of the, the bigger pipes and, and, uh, and whatnot valves of the internet. Um, reinvigorating federal research and development for cybersecurity. We, we certainly need that. Uh, preparing for our post-quantum future. Uh, that's an interesting one. Yep. Securing our clean energy source. So that makes sense. Support development of digital identity ecosystem. I mean, there's some interesting things here. These are going to be hard to implement for sure. Uh, on the other hand, I, so I'm originally from Norway and I recently had to update my my address and it's impossible to do without a, a digital ID. So I thought I could use my trusty old bank uh, ID here, which is is uh something i if it was working i could do it but this thing died uh that's how often i log in by a norwegian bank account but everything in norway now you will log in with a two-factor authentication and it's issued by like four or five different both private and public um entities it's pretty interesting so my my id works for my bank or you know embassy or uh the the social security administration it's all one system and they all kind of trust each other. And they've had that for years. Pretty interesting. We don't really have something similar here, but uh, I guess that's something that that is happening. Um, last thing, and we've talked about real ID, man. We talked about real ID so long ago now. And where are we on that? Anyway, uh, national strategy to strengthen our cyber uh, workforce. That's definitely needed. We'll see how that goes. So I think the the last thing is you know international partnerships and and we kind of said we probably wouldn't get into that. Uh, this is a topic that I think we might want to come back to and touch on some of these other areas that we didn't have time to to touch on today. Um, there are many more things, and then like one of my things that I wanted to to talk to you all about today was okay now what do I do? Like how does this affect me? And so uh, some thoughts are depending on the industry that you're in. Some of this stuff may affect you directly. Let's say you're, you know, SolarWinds or one of these software suppliers. This might be one of those things that your legal team is wondering about. And so maybe maybe what you can do is reach out within your organization to those people that might be uh, directly affected or be dealing with this kind of stuff. So the other thing that that might make sense for you to do is to like create a simple summary to share with your leadership in your company about like what this plan means, how it might affect your organization. Again, that's going to depend on your industry and so on and so forth. But this is a great, you know, tool for you as a cybersecurity leader in your organization to get some attention, to kind of show some thought leadership, uh, maybe to educate your leadership. And so make some relationships there. Uh, so that's a couple of things. And then, you know, Dave, what would you say, like, if you're, if you're in the software development industry and you, you kind of see this thing and you see something coming down, what what are some thoughts that maybe come to mind? Yeah, good good question. I suppose that can take another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely a, a lot, definitely a lot there to unpack. So yeah. All right. So on that note, we will say, hey, there's going to be another one and probably another one, and then we'll throw in some more AI in there because we love ChatGPT and all that good stuff. So I think what we'll do is we'll wrap it up there. Well, I was going to ask you a chat GPT joke real quick, though. Yeah. Yeah, what one firewall said to the other? I'll make sure no one gets in between us. <laughs> All right. That's it. So, uh, Dave, it's been a pleasure to have you, and you'll be on again here uh, for more conversation on this topic. We actually have, like, a couple more things that we want to hit you up on. 
Um, so, so thanks so much uh, for your time today. Um, everyone that that uh, got to this one and is listening, thank you very much for for listening and being with us here today. Um, it's always our pleasure to uh, to sit here and talk about the stuff that we love uh, and deeply care about. So, uh, hopefully, you got some value out of it. If you like it, please say so or, or put a like in there and share it with anyone that you care about. And then feel free to comment and let us know how we can get better. Thanks much, guys. Have a great one and be safe.